Hi, this is Tom Holland with Frank and Gilbert on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. They're both brilliant, and I'm trying to keep up. Listen in. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I'm here once again with my co-host, Frank Santopadre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a producer, occasional actor, film director, and Emmy-winning television director who's directed dozens of of critically acclaimed TV shows, including Fame, St. Elsewhere, L.A. Law, Parenthood, I'll Fly Away, Crossing Jordan, and Heroes, as well as numerous episodes of Moonlighting and the memorable Dancing Baby episode of Ally McBeal. He's also directed popular music videos for... Bette Midler and Elvis Costello, and he was awarded a Best Director Emmy for his work on the NBC miniseries The Temptations. His feature films include Bloodsport, Hollywood Boulevard, which he co-directed with former guest Joe Dante, Heartbeeps, Elvis Meets Nixon, the vastly underappreciated comedy, Get Crazy, and one of the most beloved and iconic films of the 1970s, Rock and Roll High School. In a career spanning five decades, he's worked with Mick Jagger, Andy Kaufman, Smokey Robinson, Lou Reed, Malcolm McDowell, Bruce Willis, Jerry Garcia, the Ramones, and even Frank Sinatra, as well as former podcast guests Ed Bagley, Chevy Chase, Howard Kalin, Andrea Martin, and Dick Miller. Please welcome to the show former usher and stagehand at the legendary Fillmore East. A deadhead, a raconteur, an amateur musicologist, (laughs) and a man who survived working for both Roger Corman and Caddyshack 2 and lived to tell about it. The multi-talented Alan Arkish. Boy, that was so complete. <laughs> We're completists, Alan. You are. It's, it goes well beyond the IMDb. You actually found my uh, uh, my bio somewhere. Yeah, well, we piece it together. You've done a lot of cool stuff. All that's Thank needed you. now is we get you an affordable coffin and bury it. <laughs> <laughs> like the one Zachary used to get out of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
two minutes in and he's got a Zachary oh, reference. Man. Oh, I got a Zachary story. Oh, <laughs> go hit us. Go right ahead. Okay, so are you guys from Northern Jersey? No, he's from Brooklyn. I'm from Queens. Okay, Close so enough. we all we all were, as they say, tri-state area. Yeah. So we yes. all we all went through Million Dollar Movie. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. And, and Zachary's Monster Show. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Chiller Theater, all that. All that stuff. So uh, obviously, I was a huge fan, you know, and watched Zachary. And the, a weekend at the Fillmore East, and I'm talking now, February 1970. The open one of the greatest weekends of music ever there. Uh, the opening act was a group from L.A. called Love with Arthur Lee. Second on the bill were the Almond Brothers, and the headliner was the Grateful Dead. Wow! And uh, there was no no curfew, and they were there for three nights. And the first night, Fleetwood Mac came and jammed, and that was the Fleetwood Mac with Peter Green. And uh, the Grateful Dead brought a sound man with them. Uh, by the name of Stanley Augustus Owsley. And Owsley was also the creator of Sunshine Acid uh, and uh, <laughs> not afraid to use it. And, <laughs> and Zachary came by on the Friday night show as a fan, as John Zachary walking around, you know. And, of course, he was like a hit backstage and everything. And then everyone decided that he had to come back Saturday night late show to introduce the Grateful Dead. I mean, who better? Right. So, so we early in the evening. I was, um, I was putting the water bottles uh, backstage, and I turned my back on Osley and two of the dead roadies, uh, names like Ramrod and Parrish, <laughs> and they put something in the water, and uh, so everyone who drank from the backstage water was um, completely dosed, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> And it was a great evening of music. And as the late show, after the Almonds played for like two and a half hours, now we're talking, we're at three in the morning. This coffin comes down the aisle with spotlights on it, with ushers carrying it dressed in black. And they bring it up on the stage and tilt it up, and the coffin opens and out steps Zachary, completely <laughs> dosed. And he looks out at everyone and he says, it's the grateful goddamn dead. And he climbs back in the coffin, they close it. They took them Fantastic. Oh. <laughs> the best, best intro of their careers. <laughs> we you can buy that show. Wow. We yeah. wanted to get him for this show when we started. Obviously, he's somebody who was right up our alley. He wasn't well. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. he wasn't well. And and uh, Million Dollar Movie. Yes. I forget the name of the theme song. da da is it the syncopated clock? I think so. Something like that. They would have like a drawing of a of an apartment building, a few apartment buildings, and lights going on each one. That's right. Yeah, of course. Well, as we established before, we turn on the mics that Alan is a is a tri state area guy like us from 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 Jersey. So he grew up with Million Dollar Movie and all of that stuff. Yeah, Murray the K. Murray the K. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Schiller. Murray, and- Murray was my guru. Murray was my window into the universe once I discovered him. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I never heard Murray the K on the radio, did you? I used I, to listen I to the did. good guys. Yeah. I, oh, God. It's so strange. He was strange. on 10, 10 wins, yeah. He 10, was 10 on wins. The, he, yeah, 8 o'clock to 11 o'clock every night. Yeah. I, I discovered him for myself about 1958, so that was my musical education was through Murray. 
it, it's so weird. Growing up, they were like, yeah, like five guys and you on the radio. We just lost yeah. Dan Ingram. Oh, yeah, a couple, couple of a couple of weeks show. ago, he he was one. It was Harry yeah. Harrison, right? Uh, cousin Brucey. Oh, and oh, cousin oh, Brucey. Yeah. Oh, Frankie yeah. Crocker. Well, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah. If you listen to FM, uh, uh, Scott Muni, the professor. Oh, wow, Scott Muni's name came up last week. We had Ron Dell's really? here. Allison something. The Allison Steele. Allison Steele, the Nightbird. Nightbird. Yes. She's on that wonderful Billy West does Larry Fine at Woodstock. <laughs> oh my! God. Are you familiar with this one, Alan? No. Oh, I'm going to change your life. We're going to send you Larry Fine at Woodstock, <laughs> introduced <laughs> introduced by Allison Steele. But Million Dollar Movie, I mean, is, is, is that and your local movie theater, the Lee Theater. Yes, Lee Theater. Is kind of, to, is, is, am I right in saying that that's kind of your introduction to, to cinema? Yeah. And your dad and was a my, film buff, too. Yeah, my father was a film buff, and he would recommend movies to me, uh, certainly to watch on TV. And some and they took me. I used to go to the Lee Theater, and I distinctly remember seeing um, Real Bravo there. Uh-huh. Uh huh. House on Haunted Hill. Oh sure. Uh, Did you see that in Emerjo? Yes, but they didn't have as many gimmicks. You know, I mean, unlike Joe Dante, I did not have a theater in my neighborhood that played. Like uh, uh, Tarantula and a lot of those movies, the Fort, the Lee Theater was straighter. You know, mm-hmm. what I mean? it's if you wanted to see Old Yaller, you would go. To well, the you Lee. had the Linwood Theater too, didn't you? Yes, yes. And at the, the Lee Theater, I think it was July sixth, nineteen sixty four, changed my life. Now Tarantula, which was you know a rip off of them, and mm-hmm. them's more respected. And yet, I think Tarantula is a much more fun movie than It them. is more fun. It's a less believable than that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, again, again, how often do you get tarantulas attacked by planes? And and are, there's a line in Tarantula where the general says, how are we going to kill him? And he says, napalm. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the pilots... In the plane that kills the tarantula is Clint Eastwood. Wow. How about that? He's got a mask over his face. You could just see his eyes. <laughs> I love the way Joe sends up that stuff in the mat- in matinee. Oh, it's yeah. So wonderful. Yeah. So spot Joe on. Joe told me that, that tarantula was the first movie that absolutely freaked him out. And he had to run out of the theater and little Joe Dante pacing in the lobby can't decide whether they should go back in and see what happens or, you know, he felt that the tarantula was too scary. He went back in. Yeah. And, and yeah, I yeah. remember the special effects, like the tarantula's feet never uh. actually touched the <laughs> ground. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. but 64 in the Lee Theater, that was, that was a turning point. That was a turning point. That was the first night of a hard day's night. And I was a big music fan, a Beatle fan. Uh-huh. And... You know, I think before that, when I went to see movies, I saw movies that were exotic in the sense of, look, I love Lawrence of Arabia and West Side Story. They're all movies, but they were not my life. Mm -hmm. You know, they were something you went to see that was spectacle or Rio Bravo or Shane or any of those. And even movies my parents took me to. But I went to that movie thinking I knew something about the Beatles beforehand which was a rarity, you know, and uh, knowing the subject matter. And Richard Lester transformed it, you know, and 
and did a visual equivalent of what I was feeling inside when I heard the Beatles. And, and there's, the, yeah, no, there, there's, I, a, there's a scene in the train car where, they're, where they sing, I should have known better oh, sure. with a girl like him. At about the three-quarter point, after the guitar solo, you know, everyone's bouncing around in the train. The camera's outside the cage that they're in. And all of a sudden, the camera starts dancing with them. And the, it's like the cameraman can't resist the Beatles. And I was thrown back in my seat. I couldn't believe it. It was like the Beatles had reached out. And I realized that someone was actually making this movie. You know, that someone had said, okay, now bounce, you know, that it was directed. And that was the first movie that I really started thinking about directing. That, that early. Unlike when, when the Beatles were in the, uh, on TV, everybody wanted to form a band. When I saw Hard Day's Night, I said, I'd like to make a movie. So you'd been seeing films like King Kong and Rio Bravo and, oh, yeah. and all of these things, but the, and, and, and just enjoying them as a filmgoer. Yes. But this was, yes. and what, yeah. how old are you at this point? What? Uh, 16. 16. And so that's what, pretty young to know what you want to do. funny about yeah. Hard Day's Night is I, it seems like the intention was probably just like with the Elvis movies, like make something quick and turn in a quick buck while it's hot. And, Absolutely, yeah. And, and it was transformed into something totally different. Yeah, David Picker, who produced it and who I worked with on The Temptations, told me all the inside stuff. And that when he hired Richard Lester and David Picker started seeing the dailies, he was very excited. But he couldn't get anyone back in UA to watch it back in Los Angeles. As a matter of fact, he came to LA to um, with the finished print of it, and uh, he couldn't get them to show it, to look at it. They were, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. They were so shocked when the reviews came out. It's also interesting that the Beatles knew their onions. I mean, they knew who Lester was. Yes, they had they, seen Jumping Standing Still or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and they knew yeah. they knew the sellers stuff. They yeah. knew the, you know, they they knew uh they knew the goons. Oh yeah. Yeah. They weren't novices. Have, have no, you met Lester? Have you met Lester in your travels? I wish I had because I've certainly stolen enough stuff from him. <laughs> <laughs> you, you pumped Malcolm McDowell for some information? Uh I, I think we did talk about well, it. We certainly talked about Royal uh, Flash, Stanley Kubrick. You know, that's yeah. right. Malcolm's yeah. in the Royal Flash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah. talked a lot about Kubrick and Lindsay Anderson, who I admire tremendously. Yeah, we'll ask you about Lindsay Anderson. And and how did you? Well, how did you start getting an, into the business? Actually, um, I I didn't go to film school right away. I was Fort Lee High School was not a great school, and I was like a B, B-plus student with good college boards and a bad attitude. Uh, <laughs> Sounds familiar. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, I was against the war in Vietnam. I was a troublemaker. And I didn't get great recommendations. So I ended up in a um, Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, which was at that point all men and an Amish country. And so now the 60s are in full force and I'm in Amish country. <laughs> <laughs> and... I uh, I went to the newsstand one day, and there was that Herald Tribune and a front-page story written by a writer that I admire tremendously, Tom Wolfe. And it was about um, Ken Kesey and people taking LSD. It was the first chapter of what became a running serial, which eventually became electric acid Kool-Aid test. Mm -hmm. And so I read this thing, and I'm going, okay, that's it. The world is moving, and I am in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. 
So I sat down with my parents and I begged and they let me apply to schools to transfer and I ended up at NYU and uh, lived in the East Village. My down the block neighbor was uh, Allen Ginsberg. Fantastic. And uh, at that time, there were three political parties. There was the Democrats, there was the Republicans, and there was the motherfuckers. And the motherfuckers <laughs> lived in my building. And they had a very simple platform. Everything should be free. And it was a wild building. What part of and the East so, Village is this, Alan? Because Gilbert, uh, Gilbert lived in the East Village. Second Avenue yeah. and 10th Street, 159. Second, Second Avenue and 10th Street. Where were you? Yeah, I, I used to live on Avenue A. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. When were you there? Oh, yeah. Well, when I, I, it's so weird to think now, like... When we first moved in there, people were saying, are you out of your mind mm -hmm. living on Avenue A? Because A was horrible. B and C was like the death penalty, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, oh, uh, yeah. and now it's like oh, yeah, now. You, you can't afford now you places get, you on get in. B and C. Yeah. Yeah, you go down there for a nice dinner. Yeah. So you knew Ginsburg, and did you know Abby Hoffman, too? Well, I... I, I I saw him in the bodega, and I. Oh, went, you didn't really know him, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and Abby Hoffman was, uh, I believe, fucking one of the motherfuckers, and uh, <laughs> so he was in and out of our building all uh -huh. the time. And so I was at NYU, and in my junior year of NYU, uh, a teacher got fired, and they needed a substitute, and I hit the jackpot. They hired someone who had graduated two or three years earlier, who was now looking for work, and that was Marty Scorsese. About that. Wow. And Marty became my film history teacher and then uh, my film production teacher. And I took a summer workshop and he was my faculty advisor and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, it changed my life. And you wound and up scoring him tickets for the band. All the, <laughs> you've seen my trails from hell. Marty always wanted tickets because uh, he knew I worked at the film. So, so he was basically a schnorr haven back then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But he had to see the band from the fourth row. Uh, and I think he went to see the dead and he liked this band, which I could never understand why I liked them. And they were called Spooky Tooth. Spooky Tooth. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he and, was really into Spooky Tooth. <laughs> and, and jumping out of the interview for just a second and being self-aware, for anyone having drinking games. Yeah. Listening, I said, "Wow." Oh, okay, good. Yeah. And yeah, so we've done so many of these now, Alan. The fans are locked in on Gil on the things that Gilbert says. Oh, okay. Uh, and then they've started drinking games. Yeah. So get uh, take a swig or a puff. On <laughs> yeah, because there's no acid in the drinking water. <laughs> we we don't we're having they're not having as much fun as you did. How did you get to? I'm trying to get the chronology of this. You're at NYU. Okay. You're studying with Scorsese. At, at right. What point? What, what what was this? Somebody decided to make a porno. Was that the previous teacher that? No, that yeah, the previous teacher had, <laughs> uh, had a class called. I knew you guys would get to this. Uh, <laughs> you did very deep research. Yes, I. Uh, all right, Gilbert, listen closely. Yes. Uh, once, once you say porn, you don't have to tell me. I'm just trying to get the whole chronology. There was a class called Fundamentals of Filmmaking, and what it was is everyone got ten minutes of film. And uh, you made your a film with your ten minutes of film for the semester, and 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 that's something to tell the audience that actual film. Yes, it was sixteen. Oh yeah, movies. movieolas and right. Yeah, Those movieolas, days? and we had these um, these old these Kodak. Uh, uh, I can't remember the number. Oh, filmos and imos. Wow, and they were cast iron. They were made for the military. 
And you could drop them down a flight of stairs and they wouldn't break. I remember experience. Yes. <laughs> so it was actual film that you could touch. It wasn't yes. Yeah. Celluloid. Just, and you had uh, 10 minutes of it for the semester. And uh, you were supposed to write something. And what happened is the, the teacher said, you know what? How about if we all pull our film together? I'll give you all A's and we'll make a porno. <laughs> And make a little money. <laughs> and they made it, and then they showed it to the school. Now, to be fair, the name of the porno was These Raging Loins. <laughs> so it was, it was not that porny, you know. <laughs> soft core. It was pretty soft core. Yeah. And, and Harry, the teacher, got fired. Yeah. And that's how Marty came in. And Marty, uh, we went on strike. Actually, when Marty joined us, and Marty helped lead the strike, because wow. we only had three classrooms. The famous NYU Film School could be housed on less than one floor of a building. And we didn't have any equipment, and we went on strike, and we wanted a class for ourselves about American film without the rest of the school, because we'd all seen Citizen Kane. It was now time to see the good stuff. And uh, we got our class, and we got the um, Serbo-Croatian Library thrown off our floor. And we took over their classrooms. And uh, then Marty had this incredible uh, course called American Movies. How about and, that? Good timing uh, for you. Oh, it was, you know, I was, I had obviously seen some of these movies, not the ones he showed necessarily, but, you know, this was the days of Godard and Truffaut. Sure. He was always Allenberg. into Powell and Pressburger too and, and that, yeah. and that the stuff. The first movie he showed in class was Shock Corridor by Sam Oh, Paul. Fuller, yeah. That oh, was yeah. the opening salvo. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Grow up in a hurry. This is not your mother's film course, you know? <laughs> so let's get the chronology of this. You're in film. When, when, when do you get to the Fillmore? When did you... Did you uh... um, I, st I went there, I guess it was... Uh, I guess it was my first year at NYU, which was... Uh, Fall of '68, spring of uh, fall of '67, spring of '68. I graduated in 1970, and I bought tickets to the as going to concerts, and I bought tickets to the first show at the Fillmore, and that was Big Brother and the Holding Company. And uh, I then went and saw the Who there, and uh, I would buy like a the two dollars. It was three, four, and five dollars a ticket. Um, wow! So I buy the three dollar ticket and hang out in the lobby. You know, and, and uh, there's an empty seat I'd go down to. So I saw Hendrix uh, and I saw just a lot of people. And one of my, several, one of my roommates and a couple of people I knew were ushers at the Fillmore. And one of them uh, said, you know, two nights a weekend, I want to go out and have some fun. I don't know what he was thinking. So <laughs> he said, will you take over one of my nights? I said, absolutely. So I started working as an usher. And uh, I was, if you walked in the theater and you were in the lobby, I was on the left. And <laughs> I, you had to go past me and I'd tell you what seats to be in. And um, that was what I did for about five months. And then there was an opening on the stage crew and I joined the stage crew. And my job on the stage crew was to get uh, beer, soda, and food for the bands as well as work on the crew and do crew work. Two fifty, three fifty, and four fifty. Four fifty. No, it was three fifty, four fifty, and five fifty because of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Unbelievable! They forced them to raise the price. And, right, outrageous. And that was oh. a time in New York when they had all those movie revival theaters, oh. broken down theaters. Oh yeah, that would show movies that sometimes you've never heard of. 
you're going to make me cry, guys. The St. Mark Cinema was still there. And oh, the, and the, the, the Thalia. Thalia. Right. And, oh. the, and the Regency. And the New Yorker. And the New and Yorker. And Garrick and the Bleaker. Correct. Know, and yes. And, and the, the Elgin. 8th Street Playhouse. And the St. Yeah. Mark's used to be a dollar. Oh, yes. And there was these second-run theaters where you get to see two, you know, yes. relatively current movies. And the old film forum. The and they would yeah. start to do a double feature where they there was a connection between the first and second movie. Mm-hmm. If yeah. it wasn't the same director, it was a similar subject matter. Yeah, and I spent an entire summer in the Thalia every day. You know, that was the one that was narrow and oh, long. Yeah. And you looked uphill, and every day they'd have another pair of foreign films. So my... Summer of my junior year, that's what I did every they, in the afternoon. They had that weird paved floor where the seat where yes. it, went, it went uphill and you had to look. It was very strange. Yeah. yeah. It's now the Leonard Nimoy Theater. <laughs> is oh, it? Wow. Yeah, but it's not, it's not a movie house anymore. But at least they preserve it as a theater, which is better than turning it into a dental office. <laughs> so I would, I, that's, that was my life. I, you know, the film war <laughs> on weekends and at night, you know. Amazing. And, um, Film school, and then when I graduated from film school, I uh, was offered a job working for the Psychedelic Light Show at the Fillmore. Um, I had used them to make the titles for one of my student films, you know, like a James Bond title, uh-huh. so to speak. And so I I joined the light show, and uh, there were no film jobs. I mean, basically, all of us at film school had only heard of one person who had gone to film school and directed anything, and that was a uh, Francis Coppola. Right. And that was Hofstra? Um, yeah. It was at Hofstra for originally, I think. And then. Yeah, it was UCLA. Transferred to UCLA. Yeah. yeah. But um, so I joined the psychedelic light show, and then now we were mixing those liquids and those swirling uh, lights, and I ran the dimmer boards and was basically like directing the which projectors to go on and off and which films were going to run behind the bands. And I did that from 70. To 73. We actually, I went to England and we did light show in England with The Who and The Grateful Dead. Wow. Uh, uh, and and festivals and over to Amsterdam for the Pink Floyd and, you know, all that stuff. That was, uh, I wasn't, you know, I was completely broke, but wow, what a, you know, did, I look back and, on and it. And how, <laughs> how did, what was the first thing, no matter how like non paying it was, we said, oh, I'm doing a movie. Uh, well, I did my student film at NYU yeah. about mm-hmm. my life yeah. in the film war. And then uh, I was very close friends with a guy by the name of John Davison. And John is Joe's best friend. And John went on to produce Airplane sure. and um, uh, just a whole bunch of great movies. You know, John, uh, Robocop and, and lots of other things. Uh, and uh, Jonathan Kaplan, who I'm still, we still have. Over the Edge. Together. Over the Edge, yeah, exactly. One of my favorites. And Jonathan uh, got a phone, Was we were all broke, you know, and we we're trying to find work. And Jonathan gets a phone call, and I'm going to say 72 or 70, you know, somewhere in that time frame. And the person at the other end on the phone says, hello, Jonathan, this is uh, Roger Corman. Aha. Uh-huh. And Jonathan goes, okay. You know, and this is, <laughs> <laughs> we are doing a movie out here, and the director has quit. And we're wondering if you'd be interested. Now, he hangs up. He thinks it's John Davison calling. <laughs> and the phone rings. He goes, don't hang up, young man. This really is Roger Corman. And what had happened is that they had started a movie called Night Tall Nurses. Um, 
Night call nurses. <laughs> and the cash sign was night call nurses. They come when you call. Um, <laughs> I remember it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Roger says to Jonathan, uh, you know, I need to start this move. Well, Jonathan got the job because Marty was working for Roger doing Boxcar Bertha. Right. And Roger needed a director now. And so Jonathan was uh, won first prize in the National Student Film Festival. He was the best one in our class. And uh, Roger called him, and, and Jonathan was flabbergasted. Roger said, I want you to get on a plane tomorrow and uh, fly out here and because um, we're going to start shooting in two weeks. So you need to rewrite the script and prepare in two weeks. C can you do that? And right, Jonathan was like flabbergasted. He's a, he's a New Yorker, uh, grew up on the Upper West Side, you know. And all he could think of, and he said to Rogers, um, I don't know how to drive. <laughs> it's not a problem. And Roger, as he does, cuts right to the chase. I don't care if you can drive. Can you direct? <laughs> Jonathan said, yes, and, and find someone to drive you. And Jonathan's aunt had to drive him around. Hilarious. <laughs> wow. And so Jonathan got the first job, and he made night call nurses. And then he came back, and by then I was back from England and driving a cab, broke. And uh, Jonathan and John Davison was sort of hanging around in, in, in L.A. trying to get a permanent job with Roger. And and. Jonathan gets a phone call from Roger six weeks after Night Call Nurses is opened. And it's uh, Roger, and he says, Night Call Nurses is doing very well in Because <laughs> he did territories, you know? And he says, and if we get the kind of numbers I think we'll get, we should do another one. So just rewrite the story and make it teachers. We'll call it the student teachers. <laughs> and that was Jonathan's next job. And John got a permanent job working for Roger. And uh, they were saying, come on out here. So I saved up all my cab driving money. And uh, by now, John's working there and, and Jonathan and Joe Dante. And John and Joe were the entire post-production advertising and, and uh, sales department. I mean, they didn't sell to the theater owners, but they were doing all the ads and all the trailers. And that was a lot of work. And Roger was booming. Now, all of a sudden, he had foreign pictures. So... You know, John, I had been living in John's apartment, I think, just to get me out of there. Uh, he offered me a job at $50 a week, and I took it, you know. And so I was then Joe's assistant and uh, working for Roger. And uh, These are great days. Oh, and, I'll and, tell you. And the, the talent that was there. Okay, first job, first day. We needed music for a trailer and uh, to a movie. When I, You guys are buff, so you'll know the punchline here. It's Caged Heat. Right. So yeah. I go to the KT editing room, and I don't even know how to run a moviola in 35 millimeter. This is my first day. <laughs> and they, I had run it in 16. I figured it was the same. And in those days, Rogers never made color work prints. He only made black and white work prints. And you'd edit the movie in black and white, and then you saw it in color when it was in the theater. And so I'm watching this on this moviola, you know, one single track and black and white, this women in prison movie. And, it, you know, it's pretty good. And uh, I certainly got a share of naked girls in the shower fighting and all that. But there was this, <laughs> Barbara Steele was great. Didn't there was this Steel. subplot ah. about uh, controlling the women with lobotomies. That was pretty hard hitting. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. And as I'm changing the reels, I really like the music. 
And there's a guy there who's watching me watch the movie. And I say, this is really good. He goes, thank you. I'm the director. And I said, oh, Alan Arkish, what's your name? And he says, Jonathan Demi. And uh, I say, I really like the music, Jonathan. He says, uh, well, have you ever heard of the Velvet Underground? I said, sure have. He says, that's John Cale. And he did the score for me. And that's how I met Jonathan. And I did the trailer for Crazy Mama. Her whole family's crazy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, had and Bogdanovich, and Bogdanovich and Coppola had moved on by this point. They, they oh they, yeah, they, yeah, they, they, they had passed was, through. Yes, and because of their experience with Roger, mm-hmm. that he got on the film student kick, and got he it. used their career as leverage to get Hollywood Boulevard made. Right, and that trailer is unforgettable. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember it. But I want to talk about some of the people who were there. I mean, sure. uh, Tina Hirsch, who became a big oh. editor. Uh, Demi taught us everything. We didn't even know that the sound was supposed to be labeled in red and the film in black. You know, <laughs> Tina was like, guys, you got to learn some of this. <laughs> was Demi, Demi, you mentioned, obviously Jonathan yeah. Kaplan, who, who made some terrific movies. Was Paul Bartel hanging around? Oh, God, I love Paul and I miss Paul. Yeah. Paul what a was, funny performer. Paul was like the maitre d' of the editing room. You know, it was like a crowd of us. And, you know, everyone had their, was working on the same things. And, and Paul, obviously, Death, Death Race 2000, and he was working on other stuff. And he'd come by for lunch, and we'd walk around the corner, call, the place called the Studio Grill, which is now a Rayo's restaurant. And uh, we'd all have lunch together and talk movies. And whoever was working on a movie at that time, whether it be Louis Teague or Cronenberg or, or John Sayles or whatever, it was just crowded around the table talking movies. You know? Wow, all that talent. Yeah, and it you, was wonderful. You, did you have any idea at the time? I guess you've been asked this question, you know, in, the, in hindsight, you know, like the stuff at the Fillmore. Did you know that these are these are wondrous days? I'm I'm on the, I'm in on the ground floor of something. Well, let me give you one catch line that I did for a, a movie called TNT Jackson. Okay, TNT Jackson shall put you in traction. So. <laughs> No. <laughs> Cover girl models, they don't need clothes to strike a pose. You know, you're, you're the thought that something would go beyond this. That was you know. it. You were just trying to get through the weeks. But of course, we did Amarcord trailer. Right. You know, yeah, I was going to say, Corman doesn't get enough credit. I mean, we laugh, we yeah. laugh, we laugh at, his, at, you know, at yeah. his approach to filmmaking. It's very colorful. But, he did, but, but for introducing American audiences to those films, the Fellini stuff, and, yeah. and he doesn't get enough credit. You introduced Fellini to American audiences basically like it was some cheap porn film, didn't you? Well, that, that's true. <laughs> that the, that's true. That was the mandate. Uh, you know, we Joe and I and John go to a, the screening room, and Roger says he's going to screen a movie, and he had a funny smile on his face. He says, I need a trailer on Monday kind of thing. And uh, it's Ambercord. And when it's over... You know, that's a genius movie. That's not, mm-hmm. that's prime Fellini. And we were just flabbergasted. Rogers, I'm a great, yes, I know, boys. And wow, we got to, we got to cut this together. And what, how we, and Roger says, boys, 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 <laughs> calm down. <laughs> I know it's Fellini, but we're still selling the same thing, sex and violence. Now, the woman with the big breasts, <laughs> I want that in the show. The boy's masturbating in the car. That goes in the trailer, you know. Uh, the race car's going by. Got to have that. And, <laughs> and we cut the trailer together. Joe cut it, really. And it's a brilliant trailer. And uh, But it was like four and a half minutes long. 
And Roger came in on Monday or whatever it was and uh, watches it and uh, says, can we make it shorter? You know, and we said, you know, we tried over the weekend and John will attest to it. But, and John said, we could make it shorter and still keep it Fellini. And the smart, the intelligence and instinct of Roger says, well, then let's give them Fellini. You know, and it had everything in there, and yeah. the picture opened huge. You know, I think I think of the Corman stories. There were so many great ones. Oh. You know, the oh, dro- dropping acid. There, there was. <laughs> didn't you have like some kind of catchphrase in the in the trailer? Well, all the time. Yeah, um, one of my. But for the Fellini one, it made it oh. really made it sound filthy. I don't remember that one. Sorry. Sorry, right. we'll I don't find. Don't remember that. I we'll, certainly remember. Eat my dust, and you know all, and uh, you know all the other funny. Roger goes, I, "Can you get away with that, boy?" <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say, and, "Go ahead." And he, uh, we kind of caught on. See, we had worked there through one summer, and we caught on that at the end of the summer, when the equipment was not being used, and when he had no uh, movies to get in the theater right away. He would. He said, "Well, I think you should take a vacation. You work so hard, and when you come back in two weeks, I will rehire you." You know, and <laughs> so it was on us. So the second <laughs> summer, we said, <laughs> "You know, we're cutting, living real close to the edge here." You know, you and, had two uh, pairs of pants. How'd you know? Yeah, <laughs> I've seen it. I, I saw an interview with you. What you have? What you have? Three shirts and two pairs of pants. Two pairs of pants. Point? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 80, and eight, was it eighty five bucks a week? Well, no, I was at that point. I was really living, and I was up to like one fifty. Wow. Okay. Point. Yeah, but to direct my first movie, I had to take a salary cut. Right. Uh, and so we we wanted to keep working. We wanted to make a movie, and we've been writing treatments and all this stuff. And John talked Roger into letting us make a movie while the equipment was not being used and while we weren't cutting trailers. And the idea was it would have, we sold it to Roger, Rajan did, on a movie that would have more action than any other of Corman's movies. And uh, what the deal was, we took all the action from all the trailers and all the action pictures, every Corman movie that, that had, we had worked on, and some from earlier days, and uh, wound a story around about murders on the movie set. Right. And that was, uh, and we shot new close-ups and, and well... Plot is too big a word for how they're connected. <laughs> for Hollywood Boulevard? <laughs> yes. Tra- but we got paid $85 each for making it. The trailer it, stays yeah. with me all these years later, Alan. Girls in bikinis. Uh, girls without bikinis. Witty remarks. A- <laughs> axe murders. Kung fu. And my favorite, green meatballs. Yes. <laughs> so it was, and, it's a great trailer. The reason, we, well, the reason we got to do is because Roger did something similar with Coppola and with Bogdanovich. He had bought... In that case, uh, outer space movies and stuff, and they had shot new monsters for them, you know, and and so that was in his head, and he told us where there was footage that we could use. So all the stuff in the drive-in is stuff from uh, Coppola movies and from the Terror and things like that. Yeah, and uh, you know, I am the luckiest person to have been friends with John Davison and Joe Dante, you know, because they are. We all shared this experience. But they are film buffs of the highest order. That's and, nice. You know, and they, if you guys had known us then, uh, they had a vault 
full of 16 millimeter movies, all of illegally purchased. And <laughs> Those days, yeah, you had to do it that oh, way. He had hundreds of them, and that's there was no VCRs. There was a 16 millimeter projector at John's and a 16 at Joe's and 16 at my house, and that's what we did. Every night, we'd grab a couple of movies out of the vault and run them, and I got an education. I'll bet. You know, in cinema from their point of view, you know, and... Uh, we also, they had a lot of great foreign movies. It just was so eclectic. And Roger really lucked out. I mean, yes, we all thank him. But he, he was lucky that we were there because we were film students who loved Bellini and loved all that. And John and Joe knew everything about Roger's movies, everything. So all of a sudden, these people come together. Yeah. And they are not shocked by what Roger's saying. That's not beneath them. It's what they want to do. And yet when Roger would say, I have the new Kurosawa movie, we were excited beyond belief. And he didn't have to tell us how to cut the trailers anymore. And once we did Hollywood Boulevard, he knew that we could direct. It's a mutually mm -hmm. beneficial relationship. And it was I, great. I think it was John, either how he became his assistant or got his own <laughs> movie, that he yeah. made a bet with Corman. That's it, on Hollywood Boulevard, that we can make a movie cheaper and with more action than anything Roger had made that year. And so we made Hollywood Boulevard for 75000 Joe and I each got $85 for directing it, you know. I love the in-jokes, too, in, in Hollywood oh. Boulevard. I love, is this the end of Rico? I mean, uh, it's, it's, I, it's, it's so clearly <laughs> made by guys who are watching movies 24-7 and just it getting off like, on this stuff. We, we sometimes we say, how could we make uh, for our first picture basically the film equivalent of a Romana cleft? You know, <laughs> yeah, it's ballsy. It's all about. It's full of in jokes about Roger and each other. And Paul Bartel plays the the director who hates all the actors. Miracle pictures. You know? Oh yeah, it's a good picture. <laughs> Did Roger appreciate the jokes at his expense? <laughs> he really liked it. He really <laughs> okay, liked it. Good. And when we showed him the second cut, there was a scene in it where this producer is saying, "See this shirt, hundred dollars." How about that, Ma? Like he's talking to the camera. And the second cut, it, we had cut it out for whatever reason. Roger said, what happened to the producer talking about his shirt? We said, we didn't see him. It is very good, boys. He deserves that shirt. He's a good producer. <laughs> Put it back what? in. <laughs> Two directors, no waiting. Oh, uh, that was our motto. <laughs> what was some of the craziest money-making, uh, no, my, not money-making, money-saving uh, things that Roger Corman ever did. Well, he was always trying to talk us into not using lights at night. <laughs> <laughs> did he use car headlights? That's it. Because yeah. it yeah. had worked for him on Creature from uh, the Haunted Right, Street. that's right. He told so, us that. Right. And when he says this kind of stuff, <laughs> you just go... Yes, he knows, you know. I mean, I did this thing called um, Blast. He owned a black exploitation picture called The Final Come Down that had Billy D. Williams in it. And once <laughs> Lady Sings the Blues was out, it was a big hit. And so mm -hmm. Roger says, why don't you, Alan, why don't you recut this movie and take out all that political talk, you know, and, uh, and then we'll shoot some new scenes for three days, you know, action scenes. So I recut the movie and I felt a little uncomfortable. So I actually called up Oscar Williams Jr., who had written and directed and told them what I was taking out and so forth. And I said, I, I, you know, I'll keep stuff in, Oscar. I don't want to ruin when she says, just make sure Roger sends me a check. And that was it. And wow. uh, <laughs> we shot for three days. So I'm sitting, you know, Roger's looking at the cut. Yeah. 
And he says to me, when the cut is over, you know, I shot for three days, car chases and, you know, explosions and stuff. And he looks at it and he says, Alan, have you seen many of David Lean's movies? Where is this going? You know? <laughs> and he says, you need to study David Lean. You need more foreground, midground, than background when you stage a scene. And John came home and says, Roger, we shot this in three days. David <laughs> Lean waits three days for the for the clouds to be right. <laughs> Easily. But every bit of notes he was correct about. When you I'm made sure. a mistake, he'd explain to you as a director what you had done wrong, you know, and as a producer, what the thrust of the movie was. So that's how Rock and Roll High School got made because he liked the idea of blowing up the high school. That was it. Disco that High. Was, Disco high, and he like he want, he realized that there was money in in music movies, so that's why it was originally disco. We'll, we'll high. get to rock and roll high school in a minute. I just want to ask you if you have any recollection. We had Dick Miller here. If you have any recollection oh, yeah. of meeting Dick for the first time, Walter, yes, Walter, another Walter Paisley performance, by the way. Yes, I met Dick on the set of Hollywood Boulevard, and I kind of knew who he was. Um, but not like Joe and John knew who he was. And I, you know what? I guess I'd seen Bucket of Blood. Uh-huh. And I love Bucket of Blood. Bucket of Blood is one of my favorite Corman movies. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Oh, it's terrific. It's a scream. You know, and it's deep, you know, killing people for art, you know. Is that is that permissible, you know? And uh, so I guess that's when I started becoming friendly with Dick, you know, because uh, Joe directed those scenes with Dick, but then I used them in—, in uh, Holly, uh, Rock and Roll well, Rock High, School. High School, yeah. And I think in, in on Fame, I got him a part on uh-huh. Fame. And, you, know, I, you know, we all have worked with Dick. He's like your friend. Well, for Joe, he's a good luck charm, isn't he? Oh yeah. I mean, Joe doesn't make yeah. anything without him. Exactly. I Dick was in Crossing Jordan. Right, right, right. And now, while Gilbert heads into the Nutmeg Kitchen to steal more Perrier, <laughs> a word from our sponsor. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mick Garris, and I'm with Gilbert Gottfried on the Amazing Colossal Podcast. And now, sadly, we return to Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. What's a, what was that Corman story we loved? Was it the terror, the wonder that he made because he had because oh, it, it yes. rained and he couldn't play tennis? Yeah, he. You, you he, know this. He was supposed I've, to I've, play. I, sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's told it to you himself. Oh yeah. <laughs> he, he had one day. He had the sets were still up. Yeah, and, and it he was, was going to play oh, yeah. That's how we inherited the terror footage, because that's why the ter- footage from the terror is in um, Hollywood Boulevard. There you go. So still no, trying to amortize. It, nothing you know. ever went to waste at no, his of course not. Studios. No. That's for sure. How did you and so how did you negotiate your way into uh, in, into making your high school musical? Um, Roger wanted a, a high school movie, and I had written uh, in high school. I used to have fantasies about um, having a rock and roll band come to the school so I could get out of class, and <laughs> I used a to good visualize fantasy. it every day. Along with motorcycle races in the hallways and things like that, and go kart races on the track, and uh, the band who came to the school and when I was in high school was the Rolling Stones. 
Uh, and I had this idea, and over the years, I worked on the treatment of it. And then Roger said, I need a high school movie, and I want you to do one about make with naked gymnastics in it. We'll call it. <laughs> <laughs> And bless uh, his heart. <laughs> Joe, Joe McBride, bless him, is who's now one of the great film historians. I read his Capra finished. book. Yes, and yeah. he did a. I just saw him the other night. He yeah. did a, a book on Lubitsch. You know, yeah. we're talking Good. serious. Terrific here. writer. <laughs> yes. So we start working together, and Joe came up with the idea of blowing up the school. He suggested that, and we all just that was it. That was where it was going to go. You know, and uh, the problem was that it was still called Girls Gym. You know, we wanted the students to, to go out on strike and all this stuff. And then we never got a script the way we really, really wanted it. Because there was a movie that Roger was doing called Death Sport. And Death Sport was a movie all of us avoided. So that's how bad that script was. <laughs> oh we were all asked. God. You know, <laughs> we, I had only done one movie for $85. So. <laughs> <laughs> Too and bad guess what a was film by Roger Corman standards. <laughs> and he found a guy who had never directed before, had been a film student, and that guy got to direct Death Sport with David Carradine. The problem was that David had just finished working with Ingmar Bergman and with Hal Ashby, and now he's doing this terrible biker picture. I don't know if you've seen my trailer from Hell about it. I haven't seen that one, but I'll watch it's, it tonight. It's all there in that one. Yeah. and. The director. Oh, he was coming off Bound for Glory. Yes. Yeah. And so the director didn't work out. And uh, Roger said, if you uh, come back, you know, because I have release dates, and if you direct this, I will definitely make your musical. You know? And so I did. I got got a boost in salary. Uh, it's a tough negotiation. I got him up to $450 a week for writing, rewriting, directing, and cutting the trailers. And he said, Alan, you're in Fat City. Uh, and, <laughs> so I, I finished Desperate, which is a week. terrible, just terrible. And uh, we just blew everything up. And that's how, and Joe McBride had done another draft. And then I met, uh, I love this story, what, how I met the writers of rock, the final writers of Rock and Roll High School. You guys will truly like this. So because Joe and I were good guys, we looked at, and we were hired, you hired film students. That's who you hired. So Film students, word was out, and film students would send us their student films. And uh, they would go to the office with these student films from everywhere, and uh, they would say, oh, Joe and Alan will watch them. So we watched a lot of student films. And uh, two guys from Carbondale, Illinois, had sent them in, and we're now out in California. And uh, we had their student film. We were going to give it back with them and uh, give it back to them and tell them it was nice and uh we're going to meet them at the office, and they wanted to be writers. And as they're sitting there in the office of Corman, everyone sitting there was trying to become a mutant on Death Sport. That was, they were looking for people to play mutants. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the AD or the PA who was everything is going, signing people up, and he comes up to Russ Devonch and Richard Whitley, and he says to them, are you here to be mutants? And they go, no, we're writers, but being a mutant sounds really good. <laughs> and they became mutants. And uh, that's how I got to know them on Death Sport. We gave them back their student film, we didn't, and they said that they were writers. And so we gave them the script, and they had a weekend to write. I think the deal was 10 pages. And so they wrote 10 pages that was funny. So it was basically Joe's McBride's structure, 
and a lot of their jokes, you know, and it, so it worked out great, you know, and a lot of stuff. And it was, uh, that's how they got that job. And as mutants, they were not so good. And but, uh, <laughs> Rod, Roger, Roger still thought it was going to be about disco. Because dis well, yes. dis disco was hot. You had to Yes, disco was hot, and I had to really uh, explain to him that you just don't blow up a high school. To that disco. It was, disco was not rebellious music. Exactly. It's also interesting how you settled on the Ramones, because a couple of other bands were actually under consideration. Yeah, and we had a bunch there. of meetings. Yeah, uh, Cheap Trick were the ones that, you know, closest. We first went to Todd Rundgren. Interesting. Um, and he was really smart. And he read the script and he says, the problem is, guys, I think this is a serious movie like Lindsay Anderson's If. Wow. Which was a huge influence on Rock and Roll High School. And so, you know, props to What a know, compliment. Todd. Yes. And uh, he didn't want to do it for the comedy, you know. And so I had a meeting at Warner Brothers and names were coming up and somebody said, you guys know Sire Records? Do you? And I said, I have a lot of Sire Records, you know. I have... Uh, talking heads and all that. And they said, well, how about the Ramones? And it was like a moment in that room where everyone got silent. I thought, that's a really funny idea. First verse, same as, you know, second verse, same as the first, right. third verse, different from the first. I mean, these guys are funny. And uh, we went and met with their management and uh, I told them the whole story of the movie and put in Ramones songs in those places. And uh, it was Danny Fields, and was uh, Seymour Stein's wife, Linda. Um, and uh, they were both smoking joints while <laughs> I was telling the story and laughing and stuff. And uh, then I said, and at the end, the Ramones are outside this high school. And as they play the theme song to the movie, the high school blows up behind them. And they both said, we're in, we're in. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And didn't you or the other people you worked with there once make a movie where you said it was basically like the plot in real life, how you made the movie like the plot of the producers. Oh, oh no, no, that's that's what happened. That's get crazy. get crazy. He got yeah, yeah. he got stocked. Yeah, I, I when I went to do Get Crazy, which was supposed to be for me about my life at the Fillmore East, yeah. and um, yeah, the Daniel Stern character is you essentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I couldn't get it sold. And we went to this company, and they said that if I made it more like Airplane, you know, which was a big hit, Airplane in a rock and roll theater, they would make it, you know. And so we changed the script, and I did that, and that's the movie that's out there. Um, and then they decided that it was it didn't have a great preview, and people were confused why all these different bands were playing, and it was too it was too much like a rock critics movie, and it was also. Very, very broad, you know, and fast-paced. Broader and, than you and, wanted to make it. Yeah. 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 But it's, it was funny. It's like there's 1,500 um, uh, 1500 punchlines and maybe only 700 jokes. So it's <laughs> a lot of <laughs> And uh, they decided that they could make more money by losing money. So they were, <laughs> they Bialy stocked me. So basically what they did was they sold off all their shares to some kind of tax shelter group. And then they put the movie out there and made sure that whatever the ads and the paper said, they didn't open it on that day. You know, they'd have the ads be a week off. They would never show it to critics, but they'd invite critics, you know, and they basically did everything possible to defeat the movie. It was very, very disheartening. And, uh, that's how uh, it came out, and they made no money, and they made a lot of money. 
And I met the guy who was in charge of the tax shelter group. And uh, I told him what happened and he, he figured it out. But that's the movie that led me to television. So that was my next step. You know, from right. that movie. I just want to, before we get ahead, and I, I do want to ask a couple other things about Get Crazy. Gilbert, mm-hmm. Gilbert loved the Bialy stocking thing. I just want to, <laughs> just a, a, couple, that, a, a couple of I more. I just, I thought of that recently. I was Bialy stocking. Yeah, you've, you've coined a phrase. <laughs> yes, that's a verb. A couple of more quick questions about Rock and Roll High School, which I love. First of all, PJ Souls, who is oh, the thinking yeah. man sex symbol. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that scene. And, that that scene mm-hmm. where, where the fantasy scene in her bedroom where the remote okay, show, yeah. show up is a scene that has stayed with me for 40 years. Okay. The truth about that scene, that scene is a shot-for-shot recreation of a scene from The Girl Can't Help It. Oh, no shit. Oh. It's the scene where Julie London sings Cry Me a River to Tom Ewell. Wow. Ah. And his fantasy. And about half the shots are, are very similar. Uh, I think she's in the shower, and that's how Dee Dee got in the shower yes. and all that. So I was doing my homage to one of my favorite rock and roll movies. And, uh, of course, to me, Joey Ramone, and to her, which is kind of the theme of the movie, to her, Joey Ramone was as sexy as Julie London was, you know, to Tom Ewell. I have to say, too, I mean, it's a movie, you know, it's a movie loved by a lot of people, and it's, it, it ends up being about a lot of things. I mean, it's not only a celebration of music, which yeah. is so much of what you're about, but it's it's about censorship, and it's about nonconformity, yes. you know, and it's... It's, it, it's I definitely think about it's, censorship. That was That goes back to my high school experiences. And and being told that uh, I had to take back a book report on Franny and Zoe because it wasn't in the school library. Interesting. You know, I had written the you know the book report. It was all the feelings about high school. It was interesting when I went back to my high school reunion after the movie was out, and Mr. Romando, who's uh, the school principal and who said things like "This is going to go on your permanent record, a record that'll follow you the rest of your life," comes up to me at the reunion. We're so proud of you and all this stuff and. You did that movie, Rock and Roll High School. We like to think that we contributed to that. And I'm thinking, you didn't see that movie. Wow. I blow up the school. <laughs> <laughs> it's a joyous film, Alan. It really yeah. is. And and I saw... And, and, and PJ's a really good character, and she's a good... I've had many, many young women come up to me over the years and talk about how seeing that movie and seeing this young, you know, young woman, you know, Get what she wants and write songs and be independent yeah. and, and not be held back by the rules. A strong female protagonist who's not just yeah. treated as eye candy. By yeah. the way, Gilbert was talking about double features that had some connection to each other. I saw it with Frederick Wiseman's high school. How's oh, my for, God. That was that another for, big influence. How's that for a double bill? That's and, a great and they, double bill. And they fit great together. They do. <laughs> the, yeah. the, it opened really badly everywhere, but then in Chicago— Late in that summer when it looked like it was dead, 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 they, uh, the strip in Chicago had openings on two re-releases. So it played in half the theaters with Grease and the other half of the theaters with Dawn of the Dead. Wow. Oh, And that's, that's the synthesis. You wow. Know? It's Bye Bye Birdie with Monsters. Grady wow. Sutton, by the way, who has a little part <laughs> yes. in the movie. Did he talk to you at all? Did you ask him? You're a film geek. Yes. Did you ask him about working with Fields and Harold Lloyd? Oh, yes. And I, you know, <laughs> I kept calling him Cousin Claude. <laughs> Cousin Claude, how are you doing? <laughs> He's not in the movie very long. Oh, also, the no, soundtrack, uh, the, the, I don't know how you got that McCartney song, but well done. Danny and, Fields. Okay. And Oh, you, you know who didn't get the part of, um, and we wanted him to do it, but he was afraid of losing his pension. 
He was the last of the Stooges. Um, oh, Joe Dorita? Joe Dorita. Joe Dorita was offered the was part. Was going to be the, yeah. Yeah, the principal. But he, he didn't want to lose his, his Or the, the administrator. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And See, I'll, I can say that to you guys, and you act like, of course. We've had whole shows about <laughs> Joe Dorita. Yes. yes. By, by the way, of Clint, course. as Eagle Burger, let us not forget, Clint, he's been here on this yes. show. And, uh, uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful performance, but it's a pretty original, <laughs> audacious character. Oh, I know. Define in a high it's school a little movie. bit like uh, Yosarian in Catch Twenty. A little bit, yeah. And could, Smart. Could we jump ahead, sure, to Caddyshack Two. What are you trying to ruin the guy's evening? Uh, <laughs> sure. Yes, absolutely, man. I think we're on a roll. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm older and more mature now. I can live. That. <laughs> Gilbert shows no mercy. No. Alan. That's okay, because we're going to talk about you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So, yeah, there's Caddyshack 1, major hit, uh, still people love it. Although Doug Kenny was never happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so Caddyshack 2, just go right ahead. (laughs) Okay, so I had (laughs) developed a movie called National Lampoon Goes to College. And it was about all the things you go through, the interviews and the uh, SATs. And I thought it was, you know, an area... Good for mining from the Lampoon yeah. at Warner's. And uh, Warner's uh, decided that they didn't want to make it. And that they said, but how about you direct the next uh, Caddyshack? You know, we're doing Caddyshack 2. And if you want to do it, you'll be on an airplane in five days with John Peters and you'll fly to New York. And we're going to try to find you a star. Because I think at that point, Rodney had already turned it down. Uh-huh. And that's how, um, uh, what's his name? Uh Oh, Jackie Mason. Mason, yeah. Jackie Mason got in the movie. And so we went and we saw Jackie Mason uh, on Broadway, and he was so great. Yeah, he's funny. Oh, he was, he killed, and it had all the Warners people. I flew on the jet, you know, and the movie was getting made. And um, I was going to stay and watch Jackie again the next night because I really wanted to get to know him and go out to dinner with him. And I invited my mother and all this stuff. And the second night, as I'm watching it, uh, I noticed that he wasn't connecting with the audience. He was connecting with the audience for the jokes, but he was not reaching out to them, you know. that the, He didn't move anybody, you know, with the material. It was jokes, 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 but there wasn't that eye contact and all that. And I, it started to bother me. And when I got back to L.A., I went into John Peters' office. I said, you know, John, I know we all are sold on Jackie Mason, but I'm— Jackie's a great comedian, but I wonder if he has what it takes to be an actor, you know. And John said to me, don't turn a go picture into a development deal. Wow. And so that's where we went with Jackie and, you know, Chevy was in it. And uh, Dan was great. Dan Aykroyd was wonderful. Was Kinnison in, in, involved for a couple of minutes or was that only when Rodney was... Uh, that I don't know. I okay. didn't I, I think... Him. That's what I'd heard. Kinnison but- was involved... When Rodney dropped out, he dropped out too. Yeah. And, and, and there was a writer's strike coming up. That doesn't so help. No. And, and if you listen to um, uh, what? Oh, yeah, Randy Quaid's. Oh, he's funny. Randy's yeah. really funny. Yeah. He's yeah. funny. Yeah. But it's definitely written for Kinnison. Interesting. 
Yeah. If you really listen to his tirades, they're Kinnison tirades. Well, did you at least I, ask Robert Stack about working with Douglas oh, Sirk in your favorite, ah, your favorite and, movie? And, you know, Lou Bitch. A guy's into be or not to That's be. That's right. He's you know? into be or not and, to be. Shame God, on me. Yeah. But written on the wind. I know you love yes, it. You know exactly. you, oh, you, you I love, love it. written on the wind. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it was great to be around Jackie. The thing was that Jackie... He he learned the lines, but he he didn't have the thing where he pick up cues. You know, he'd wait till everyone stopped talking and go, "Oh, it's my line." You know, so um, masters, which is the key to comedy, never happened. You know, um, so it was kind of that shot in close ups and tried to be made in the editing room and didn't work out. And at, at that point, I vowed, you know what. Stay with television. You just came off of Moonlighting, you know, and St. Elsewhere. Why yeah. don't you just you were, stick with that? Yeah, you were making some uh, making some oh, great yeah. headway in television. Well, you said you said the television kind of taught you to tell stories. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, television is just driving the narrative. And, uh, you know, those two series, uh, Moonlighting was the closest I've ever come to the kind of romantic comedies that I loved growing up. Yeah, I mean, I... I'll tell you, you guys will appreciate this. We were doing a scene at uh, Moonlighting where the uh, Sybil and Bruce have stolen a milk truck and the truck is bouncing back and forth on the road and they're throwing milk bottles out at the people chasing them. And there was something about the scene that reminded me of a scene in Preston Searches in Sullivan's Travels when the the big uh, land cruiser yeah, is chasing yes, yes. Sullivan and yes. people are falling down. So yes. I brought this, the tape in the next day and Glenn Karen comes down to set and we watched the scene from Sullivan's Travels and discussed why it was funny in the framing and we recreated as much as we could that feeling on the set. I could not have been happier. That's great. No. Well, there was this, obviously he was a fan of screwball comedies to have, to, oh, yeah. to have come up with that premise in the first place and cast it that Absolutely. way. Absolutely, yeah, and... and and it was just a funny you show. You did great work on that show. And, and of course, I have to bring more dirt into it. That sure, that I'm here for that. Two co-stars hated each other. That's true. They <laughs> did not get along. And, and the thing was, that, and also, Glenn couldn't write the scripts until the last minute. So you got your pages for the next day around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And that made her... Pissed off. She needed yeah, prep time. Simple and Bruce would learn. Yeah, and Bruce would learn his lines at the last minute. So... While I was prepping the show, my first episode, I had no script, so all I did was hang out on the set. And I noticed that you got beat up as a director really badly if you said, we'll do it both ways, you know, because they both had different opinions. So um, I never did that. I said, we're going to do it, you know, this way. And uh, luckily, Sybil was a big movie buff, so I could talk to her about uh. movie stuff. And she gave me his whole lecture once about Cary Grant and how he was the best reactor in movie history. No kidding. And that she was playing Cary Grant the way he listens and the way he reacts and thinks on camera and was a great lesson in, in cinema. She turned and, out uh, to be a good comedian. Oh, yeah. Sybil Shepard. Yeah. She got a lot of shit, obviously, you yeah. know, early in her career. But they, they you know, Bruce was rise was meteoric. Yeah. You know, and... Um, she was the, it was her show to begin with, and so that really played on it. And they stopped talking to each other, but they had this. We would drive around. I don't know if you remember. There's a lot of scenes in the BMW with them driving around, and when we would shoot those scenes, as we went back to Fox, they would have the microphones turned off. We couldn't hear what they were saying, and they would. That's when they would talk when they were locked in the car together, 
And there was this deep understanding that they'd have with each other. And there are times on that set when it was magic. You would, know? would you say that the tension between them sometimes helped the oh yeah the relationship yeah. of the characters? Exactly. I, I noticed it once when the show went into reruns. And I watched uh, one of my season openers. And uh, the first scene was Sybil coming back from hiatus. It was, everything was very self-conscious, you know. And uh, she was being funny. And then Bruce came back and he was doing La Bamba and a funny hat. And it was funny, but it wasn't. I could feel them pushing, you know, and I had directed, so I, I, you know. And then Bruce goes into her office, and they just stand there and look at each other, and I said, there's the show. There's the franchise, you know. Interesting. You know, even after all those years, I could smell it. It shows like that are are lightning in a bottle, aren't they? Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's so casting dependent. I got just a couple of more things about Get Crazy because I don't want to give it short shrift. First of all, that cast— I mean, oh. we, we've been trying to get Bobby Sherman on the show, but Bobby Sherman and <laughs> Fabian, who casts, who thinks to cast Bobby I, Sherman and Fabian as two henchmen? That was me. <laughs> that was me. And, and Bobby inspired. had to get out of retirement. He he was, um, you know, when an ambulance arrives, he's yeah, one of those Yeah, he's an EMT. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, he's been out of the business yeah. a long time. But also And those, Howard, Kalen. And Howard, we had Howard here. He's a- Is he? He's the greatest guy. A treat. He's so funny. <laughs> it was so, and, and of course, a million- Turtle stories and John Densmore from the Doors. Yeah, it's a great cast. It's an eclectic cast, and it's, and it's the great Alan, Garf- the- Alan Garfield slash Gorwitz. Well, that part originally I wanted uh, the guy who was originally in Law and Order, Jerry Orbach. Oh, Jerry Orbach. He was looked to me like Bill Graham, and he had the humor. Right. So this is you. This is a this is a film that was very personal to you, based yeah. on your experiences at the at the Fillmore. You've got the yeah. Bill Graham character. You're the Daniel Stern character. I, by the way, I urge the tragedy what happened in the film, but I urge our listeners to find it on YouTube and watch it. Yeah, because yeah. it's just it's just got so much wonderful stuff in it. And McDowell, thank you, thank you so much, my oh, God. Malcolm. We uh, <laughs> nobody uh, nobody plays an eccentric lunatic like Malcolm uh, McDowell. You know, and he's like uh, with menace. He, says, he didn't want it. He says, "I can't do a movie where I talk to my dick." And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I said, why not? You know, you work with, with Kubrick. <laughs> but he'd also done Caligula. <laughs> yes. And so w- he he was intrigued by singing, you know, and playing that character because he knew Mick Jagger and he knew Rod Stewart. So the first night in the studio, he he's going to sing Hot Shot, you know. And uh, he gets about, you know, one verse in and, he says, let me start over. He start, does it again. He says, we all look at each other and he goes, I can't fucking sing at all. <laughs> he said, we didn't want to say anything, but I think we're in a little trouble here. You know, we're going to do a line by line. He says, no, here's what I'll do. I'll do it as a recitation, you know, to heavy metal. So you guys, you know, work out the arrangement a little bit and I'll recite it and half sing it. And that's what he did. And it worked. You know. Did you, when you worked with Jagger... This is the obvious question. Yeah. You work with Jagger and Bette Midler. Did, did he yeah. have anything to say about this, this, this homage? No, he didn't. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is that Mick Jagger is beyond comparison. Uh-huh. And Bette, who, got, who hired us for the do this video, was just as intimidated is not the word. He, she just would get just as choked, you know, by talking to Mick as we did. So she'd go, oh, I got to call him up. I'm so scared. I'm so nervous. And here he was like, bet, you know, come on. We're going to have a good time. And so 
you know, we were all a little nervous around them. And I actually, aside from directions that I gave him, I don't think I said more than 10 words to him. Really? It was just like... He didn't know about Get Crazy? He didn't no, know he that didn't. It was a, he didn't. A, a set, but we, we had, he was really nice. Setup. And he invited us to his house. You know, so yeah, that was great. Yep. I, I, it, I tell you, and I want to, again, say to our listeners, not only Rock and Roll High School, which, which is a sweet movie, which I'm sh- uh, many people have seen. By the way, did Phil Spector work on that soundtrack? Yes, he just did the one song after uh, the movie was done. Okay. He didn't really do anything that was in the movie. Okay, but that one, I want to urge our listeners who, who follow us and care about the movies we pick and care about the movies we like and, and get crazy. Uh, uh, just There's a Ramona Clay. <laughs> but if, but it's but it's so much fun. Thank you. And it's Thank so you. you know, and it's unfortunate what happened to it. But I don't think that diminishes the quality of the things that are in it. Well, thank including you, including those performances. Yeah. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. And and great. you did the Temptations uh, yes. movie. That was that was also a terrific. Labor of love. Yeah, that was a labor of love. I it was. Uh, it's funny. I my uh, I had a my agent at the time calls me up on and says, uh, "Alan, you like the Temptations?" And I said, "Jill, is this like a trick question?" <laughs> you know? She says, "Do you?" And I said, "I love the Temptations." She says, "Well, you know, they're making a miniseries about the Temptations." I said, "Can you get me a meeting?" And she says, "Tomorrow at ten a.m. Listen to your albums." And I walked out with the job. You know, and uh, working with. Otis uh, of the Temptations was uh, and Smokey you know, and all right Smokey story. Sure. Oh, yes. Okay, so here's the Smokey story. So at the start of the movie, I had lunch with Smokey, and he didn't know me, and he gave us a lot of great info, and he told us how uh, My Girl was written and how it was presented to the Temps, and it was around the piano and the Apollo, and they basically, he made a, uh, a wild guess that, that David would be good for the vocal. And up to that point, Eddie had been doing all the vocals. And then when they got to the chorus, he said to them, guys, just take, they're saying, what should we do? And I said, just take it to church. And I just loved that story. And so when it came to shoot the scene, I didn't really have dialogue for everyone. I just told them about it. And we did a bunch of takes and did it in one shot, like a, half circle dolly shot around them. And it comes out really nice. Now to make the movie was extremely difficult because of all the hair work that needed to be done. And you try to do two or three different periods in the same day. And we were fighting daylight one time and trying to get the stuff outside the Motown on the lawn and keep it so we could finish while it was daylight and have an early call the next day. And my trusted AD is like working her butt off and my cell phone rings. And she looks at me like, you're not going to answer that, are you? And I did. And I said, hi, who is this? And this voice says, Alan? I said, yes. He says, it's Smokey. Smokey Robinson? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. And she goes, who are you talking to? And I said, it's Smokey Robinson. She goes, yeah, one minute. You know? (laughs) I said, said, what's up, Smokey? He says, I've been watching the daily. Suzanne DePask, let me watch the dailies. And that scene with my girl... You really got it right. And I want to be involved in the movie. And said, Carol, he wants to be involved in the movie. She goes, one more minute. And so I'm listening. He says, I've actually written a song for the movie. Would you like to hear it? It it might be really good uh, for the funeral scene. And I said, of course. Carol, he's going to sing for me. And Carol goes, 
All right, we're going to light for five more minutes. <laughs> and Carol and I sat down on this curb in Pittsburgh in the twilight and listened to Smokey sing to us over the phone. What a great memory. Oh, my God. Wow. You know. Well, you got to write a book, Alan. I'm, I'm actually working on an autobiography, but I'm doing it to the camera. Okay. I'm doing it as monologues. Okay, because this is good. This is just great stuff and that has you. to be told. What did you learn about the temptations that really, like, shocked you or affected you while doing the movie? Um, that there is, inside a rock band, there are certain roles that everyone has. And someone has to be in charge. Someone has to be the Johnny Ramone. And Otis was the Johnny Ramone. And that causes all kinds of problems. And oh, he's the founder. They were, they were the, you know the song, Pop Was a Rolling Stone? Sure. That's them. Each one of them are five guys on the road and just all the, the, the fun and all the camaraderie and all the women and all that. And it took its toll one by one for them. But Otis kept it going. And... They just kept finding inspiration. And in a way, it was a huge success because the family part of it really worked. Uh, their relationship with their family was what carried it through. And I was able to project my love of music on it and how I felt when it, I heard The Temptations. It shows. And you won, yeah. an, and you won an Emmy. Yeah, and uh, it's it's... The scenes where they're, uh, some of the scenes on the stage when they're doing My Girl, I, I got my favorite uh, Steadicam operator and the DP, Jamie Anderson, someone I went to NYU with. Who sh Jamie Anderson shot student teachers, so there you go, you know. Foreman <laughs> <laughs> <And, laughs> <laughs> survivor. And he shot Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, so uh, I wanted the Steadicam. I wanted the camera at times to make you feel like you were the sixth temptation. Like you were in that row when everyone did the steps and you'd move around with them. And it was just a lot of love that went into it. You get the sense that and David Ruffin couldn't have been an easy guy because he had a lot of, plagued by a lot of personal problems. He couldn't have been an easy guy to work with all of that time. Okay. That, that Otis so, had to keep all of that together. Listen, when Otis came to the set while we were shooting only once, uh, and that was the day we were shooting the scene in David Ruffin's apartment where David is all coked up. Mm -hmm. And in the scene... Uh, David and his and his lackey are doing a lot of blow, and in comes Otis and uh, the guy with the low voice. It's been a long time, uh, and they are there to say you've missed three or four rehearsals, and this has got to stop. And if you don't stop, we're going to throw you out of the band. And David turns to him and says, "Throw me out of the band. Throwing you out of the band. No one comes to see you sing, Otis. It should be called David Ruffin and the Temptations." Which is an exact quote. Now, mm -hmm. Otis is watching the rehearsal, and it's over, and he starts to get like this look on his face of deep unhappiness. I said, is there a problem, Otis? I mean, what do you want me to change? Because this is the first time he's on the set. He goes, no, Alan, there's no problem at all. This is just too much like it was. I can't watch. And he left. And wow, we, we had just, you know— it, the, the cast ended up with those same relationships with each other as that, the band. That is did. fascinating. Yeah, tell, tell you, you Leon were, was awesome. You yeah. also got to work with the chairman of the board, so we can't we can't leave. Okay, we can't yes, leave yes. without yes. talking about that. Uh, okay, <laughs> so it's in the intro. <laughs> all right, so uh, I really want. I heard about a project uh, called Hoboken, 
which was being uh, produced by uh, Tina Sinatra. And it just seemed like when I read it, it was just seemed like something I would I really want to do because I grew up in Northern Jersey. And so I knew a lot about Hoboken. And I, I thought it was a lovely story. And, um, and it had access to Frank Sinatra's music. Now, coincidental to this, across the street from me when I was in about eighth grade was a house that Frank Sinatra's parents moved into. And Frank had bought them this house. And so they lived across the street from me. And I used to rake their leaves wow. and shovel the snow for them. And uh, his mom would make me hot chocolate. Oh, and doll, I really dolly. want this. Movie. And I was shameless, guys. When I had my interview with Tina, that's the first thing I thought. <laughs> you know, Tina, how's your parents <laughs> used to make me hot chocolate? And <laughs> so I got the job, you know. And, uh, you know, it was all about Frank. And he's only in it for like, 40 seconds, you know, and uh, I love making the movie. It was a great experience and editing the movie was so much fun because we had all the music and I planned all my shots around the music because I had all the music ahead of time. Sure. I could have any Sinatra song, you know, uh, and so the day he's going to show up, he, he takes off from Jersey in a private jet, you know, and Tina's very excited, keeps calling him all day long and he we're really excited. I've been studying Sinatra now. I'm, I'm reading every single book on Sinatra I could find and, and watching all the old movies. And he's here, he's here, he's coming, you know. And, uh, and uh, uh, the door opens and in comes Frank Sinatra. We're playing young at heart on the stereo, right? And in comes Frank Sinatra. But it's the old Frank Sinatra. It's the very old Frank Sinatra. And he can sort of, he really can't walk very well. And he just looks like an old man. And so I go up and I introduce myself and I look over at the producer, you know, uh, and uh, we both say, okay, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And we show him where his mark is. And he says, what's my line, young man? I said, Joe sent me. The deal is that um, her husband, who's dead, uh, has contacted Sinatra because she wanted to date Sinatra in high school, but she chose her husband instead. So Sinatra's going to come and, and bless the place. And, and give her a flower. And so, and it's her opening night. So he goes off and I'm looking at, at the uh, producer and oh boy, it's a, it's a good thing we got a, um, a double. We got an exact double because we knew Frank doesn't want to have any coverage. You know, he's not going to sit there. He does one take. If he does one take in, in Ocean's Eleven, he's not going to do right. like yeah. me, you know. And, uh, and Frank Capra in his biography says Frank, would he'd only oh, do yeah. one take. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, we get all set, we get the shot lined up, and the idea is that the shot is the whole group family there, and they hear a sound, like, and the like, wind blows, and they part, and there's Frank Sinatra in backlight, you know, in the doorway, and Olivia Dukakis, uh, Olivia Dukakis walks up to him, and he's supposed to nod and say, Joe sent me, and hand her in a, a flower. So we're lining it up with this lookalike, and we're going, this guy's in better shape than Frank, and it's terrible. You know, we don't know what we're going to do. And so then he's coming in, he's coming in. So coming in and people have to walk him because he's the cable. And he, I go up to him and he says, uh, uh, young man, uh, what's my line again? I said, Joe sent me and you hand her the flower. Right, right, right. I got it. Okay. Are we ready? I said, we're ready. So I go up to Olympia and I said, uh, um, I said, oh, you're supposed to kiss her. And I go up to Olympia and I say, 
So I started to give her direction, right? And she goes, Alan, you're a wonderful director, but I have waited 35 years to kiss Frank Sinatra. There's nothing you can tell me. Right? <laughs> yeah. He's just so funny. So we line up and camera parts, and as the light hits him, he's now Frank Sinatra, right? He is, he is the star. He has summoned all his energy, and it's all coming towards him in the room. As the camera goes towards him, it's like, we have no choice but to approach Frank Sinatra. It's unbelievable. And as he leans over and he gives her the flower, he takes her hand and he kisses her and then he leans over and kisses her on the lips. And cut, the whole place explodes in applause, you know. And I, I said, thank you, sir. Thank you. And he says, it was good? I said, yes, it was. He says, do you want another? I said, if you do. And he says, let's do another. And I yell, he wants another. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You got two takes out of Frank. Yeah, so we back up and we do it. And now I say, he says, you want some more coverage? I said, yeah, I'd like to go over your shoulder. He says, let's go over my shoulder. So his assistant comes up and hands him a giant Jack Daniels <laughs> and a pack of camels, you know, because now he's alive, you know, and he's sitting there and wow. Audrey Landers was in it with a low cut top and he puts his arm around and says, honey, you look like you're a little chilly. And uh, he starts <laughs> drinking Jack Daniels and smoking camels. And he looks at me, he goes, you're doing a good job. You want a bite of this? And he hands me the drink. And, and so I go, I just, I well, sir, I think I, let me get the coverage. <laughs> <laughs> so he does both the angles and everything. And, and like, you know, like a saint on Easter weekend, he flies out. He's gone, you know, off the, back to Teetleboro, wherever he came from. And the, everyone, it was just magic. And so uh, everyone in the crew is just like, oh. And uh, just sitting there, and and uh, Olympia is like stunned, and uh, her makeup person says, "So Olympia, what was it like kissing? Her? I mean, what were you thinking?" She says, "You know, by the third or fourth take, it just seemed like all I could think of was these are the lips that kissed that these are the lips that kissed Ava Gardner's pussy." <laughs> It killed in the room. It killed. <laughs> oh, what, a, is, what a treacle cutter. <laughs> I know. <laughs> wow. I, I, I knew, Gilbert, I knew you'd like that. I knew you'd like that. You guys walked right into it, and I had to give it to you. He knows his audience, Gilbert. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you ever. Alan, well done. But I don't know what that has to do with Richard Pryor and Marlon Brando. So. <laughs> This is a man that listens to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I knew you'd like that. Uh, you know, you've, you've been very flattering, by the way. You wrote to me and told me. He said, I don't know how you and Gilbert know the shit you know. I thought I knew oh. stuff. <laughs> but he's, he's in awe of our, our savant our savantism. Yeah. Johnny Quest, I don't know. Johnny know. Quest. Yeah, we had, and then we got Tim Madison. We got Johnny Quest himself. What about Jeez. Groucho? You told me an email. There was, a, there was one Groucho yeah, anecdote. I was... Uh, I was obviously a huge Marx Brothers fan. I think they were the first comedy team that I loved, you know. Um, I liked the anarchy of it, you know. It's just seeing it on TV, maybe it was a million-dollar movie or mm -hmm. something. Just the, the anarchy of it and the way that the, their world was just like anything could happen in it, and that appealed to me a lot. And I guess, and also when I got to college, I'd go to the Bleecker Street Cinema and watch them all in a theater with an audience. Yeah, that's I just how I used to them. see them. Oh, and Groucho was my absolute favorite, you know, and I read Harpo Speaks and all of that, you know, I was, knew a lot about them. And so I think I was in L.A. about two, three weeks, and uh, John Davison, my friend, uh, said, you know, there's a, um, a Leo McCary movie at the Academy tonight, uh, uh, 
the Milky Way with Harold Lloyd. And so he said, let's go see it. I got, you know, so sure. So you have to, okay. I had huge, wild, long hair then, right? Like the biggest Jufro. Oh, you and seen I, the pictures, yeah. And I had, uh, I was wearing overalls with psychedelic uh, 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 patches all over it, you know, so. And, and, and uh, 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 Converse All-Star uh, sneakers, green ones. And so I'm in the bathroom taking a leak and uh, before, before the movie and <laughs> I look over and right next to me, this person steps right in, you know, the next uh, urinal and it's Groucho Marx. <laughs> oh, oh wow. my God. And so he unzips and I try not to look. <laughs> he's, he's peeing next to me. And I guess I, I was staring at him, you know, and all I'm thinking is, how do I ask him for his autograph? How do I ask him? And I kept thinking, and it's like he read my mind, and he looks at me and he goes, forget it, kid. My hands are full. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, I waited, and I washed my hands a really long time until he came over, and I tried to, to engage him in conversation, but he was having, not, you know, about Leo McCary. That's why I Right, Leo McCary, right. Yeah, the Duck Soup, my favorite. Of course. My five favorite movies of all time. So you just let him walk out of the men's room, and that was... That was it. He was not going to engage a anymore brush with, with someone who had, who had hair like mine and was, looked like an, a psychedelic farmer. <laughs> psychedelic <laughs> farmer. See, now, and you, you love Night at the Opera. Oh, and to yeah. me, A Night at the Opera just strikes me as the beginning of the end. For well, the it's, it's yes. to your credit, uh, Alan, that you sold A Night at the Opera so well in your trailers from hell. Uh, yeah. And I episode. recently watched A Day at the Races again. Yeah. And... Uh, there's truly offensive uh, numbers, uh, music oh, yeah. numbers with yeah. Negroes. Uh, but the uh, the stuff in the operating room is funny. Yeah, that's the stuff know. they took on the road. And yeah, workshop. all that was good. And the night at the opera, you're right. It's, you know, the the shtick is great and take me out to the ball game and the party of the first part and there right. is no sanity clause and all that and stuff. And the stateroom scene. Yeah, oh, the stateroom scene is yeah. fantastic. It's genius. But... It's the McCary stuff. It's duck soup, and and then it's also monkey business. That you know, that's where the anarchy shines through. Oh, absolutely. So when you did the the the, the night at the opera trailers from hell, the Paramount ones mm -hmm. had already been spoken for. I don't remember why. Uh, you know, okay. I chose night at the opera. Probably sometimes it's hard to find the trailer. Yes, and you know, right. you never know what's going to come up. I mean, I I just have one on Carrie that came out. I was so shocked that no one had done Carrie. You know, and uh, I asked Joe about. Um, uh, uh, Goodfellas, and no one had done Goodfellas. Oh, you did a great job wow. with that one. Yeah, that was surprising, and and shampoo. So you know the obscure ones you can grab, but uh, and I tended to a lot of the music ones. But I was those three. I was really surprised. So I get five more that are coming up. And yeah. what I love about Send the Paramount there. ones, as opposed yes. to MGM, is the Paramount ones. You laugh and miss five lines afterwards. Oh. As and, you're and, and Zeppo's in them, which makes them, yes. which makes them better. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. does. Yeah, there's, yeah, a, there's more of a balance. Yeah, there. you know, I, and I think I read somewhere that McCary didn't want to do Duck Soup because he, Chico was such a terrible gambler that he was always missing shooting days. So he, wouldn't, <laughs> he said he wouldn't do it unless they kept, Zeppo, uh, kept Chico in a cage. So they had a cage <laughs> on stage with a phone to Chico's uh, uh, bookie, and that's how they kept his eye on him. You know. Yeah. By the way, the uh, I, uh, we we plugged um, Trailers from Hell when Joe was here. 
Oh, and yeah, I think also with, Larry, with our pal Larry Karasuski, who we want to thank for uh, for connecting us. Uh, the way. Larry is just the best guy. And, 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 and Gil- such a wonderful writer. And wrote Problem Child for Gilbert. All right. Yeah, yeah. Problem <laughs> Child 1 and 2. But and I just went. I just went to the uh, Milos Forman tribute, so I saw you know two of the movies that they wrote for him. You know. Yeah, shout out to Larry and Scott, who are not only oh, our yeah. friends yeah. but terrific, terrific writers who uh, yeah. we admire greatly. But your music episodes of Trailers from Hell, uh, which I was ODing on last night, High Fidelity, <laughs> High Fidelity, Almost Famous, a movie I share your love. Yes. Four. Yeah. Um, yes. And and also especially the director's cut. That's the one which to get. I haven't seen yet. But yeah, we, I think you can get it from Amazon. I'll get my hands on it. But also, you and this must have pained you. You were you were very honest and forthcoming in your review of Help. I know because Hard Day's Night is so perfect, and Help it could you know like a lot of things. The Beatles understood stuff the first time they did it, and so when everyone wants them to do it again, and they they went along with it, it still has funny, wonderful scenes in it, and the songs are and great. the songs, yeah. But the ring and all that stuff is not as much about them. You know? Yeah, I don't think they were as engaged. No, no. As, as as they were the first time. It it became and it's hard funny, to be a virgin though, again the second time. It's a help that's more like the monkeys. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Uh, and speaking of the Beatles, were you? I know you saw just about every show at the Fillmore. Were you there yeah. the night that John and and Yoko recorded the live album? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. The night that John sang with the mothers, I was there for that. And Yoko sang with the mothers. Wow. Uh, yeah. When Zappa was there, anything could happen. Um, I mean, you know, the Fillmore was such a presence in New York. And the late show, people who were from Broadway or people, music people who had worked earlier in the night would all come to the Saturday Night Late Show. And they got the soprano from the Metropolitan Opera came by. And that was a big deal for everyone, and you know. And uh, she was came by. She had never been to a rock and roll show. And uh, older woman. And uh, they took her backstage to meet Zappa. And Zappa, you know, invited her to sing with them. And, oh, I don't know the song. She goes, you come out on the stage. We'll work something out. So uh, <laughs> she comes out on the stage. And she and so she, he says, sing. And they're all vamping along with her. And then she goes, okay, now you got to sing one of our songs. And she sang Louie Louie. How about that? But the mothers, you said, you'll figure out the words pretty easy. And you saw Miles <laughs> Davis. You saw Derek and the Dominoes. You yeah, saw, I saw uh, Miles, uh, open, Miles open for Steve Miller and um, incredible Neil Young. And incredible. an early version of, of Tommy as well? Yes, the first, uh, the first time they played Tommy live in America. How about that? And Jeez. the theater caught fire during the performance. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that was a night. <laughs> and the New Yardbirds. Yes. Yes, uh, you know, we were so excited about the the Zeppelin, you know, yeah. uh, because we were such Yardbirds fans. And, you know, if you were, um, you know, you, you each had a position as an usher. And if you wanted to go down front and take that position right in front of the stage, you know, you could find an, a, a set if you liked the band, do it. But everyone wanted to be there for the Zeppelin after the first night. And I wanted that for Saturday Night Late Show, you know. And so we all drew straws, and I got that for Saturday Night Late Show. So I was like five feet from them, you know, playing. And And how bad? Oh, no. How bad was the fire? Well, what had happened was, 
you probably, I don't know if you remember where the building was or now. It, it, it's a bank Fillmore, now, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, the front of the Fillmore is a theater, but in the corner, there was a, um, a, a, a bodega. And it was part of the building, but it was a little bit separate in a certain way. And so while we're inside, and uh, I had gone down front to watch, you know, the who they were doing. Tommy is unbelievable. They were levitating the building. And as I was walking back up the aisle to to spell the person at the head of the aisle, the lobby was filling up with firemen. Oh. You know? And there was a lot of cop car lights outside. And as I looked around, I noticed how much smoke was in the theater. And soon the police were there and everything. And, and the Who were just getting into the ending, you know, listening to you, I get the music, you know, following yeah. you, I get, uh, I, I, you know, they're just climbing and building. And uh, the firemen, since everyone's eyes are on the Who, no one is noticing that the firemen are filling the aisles now. But no one had gone up there to stop the Who because it was so intense. It was like <laughs> going into a, a, a furnace. And some cop pushes by me plane calls when he runs up the center aisle and he jumps up on the stage and tries to get the microphone from Roger Daltrey. Now, if you remember the who, Daltrey always swung the microphone yes. like a lariat. Yes. And Townsend is in complete intensity, you know, swirling and kicking and, and, and Moon is like banging. And Townsend looks over and sees some guy in a suit fighting with a singer. And as they get to, you know, the big chords, Townsend runs across the stage and kicks the cop in the balls. Oh, my and God. cop goes down like a stone, you know. And so the roadies come out, drag this guy off, and now we notice that there's firemen. But the Who finish, and they are in such a frenzy. The audience is now standing on the seats because it's like it's a Roman Colosseum now. we got blood in the air. And... Uh, who count down and go into summertime blues. I'm going to raise a fuss. I'm going to raise a holler. I mean, and so now it's a rock and roll show out of control, you know. And uh, Bill Graham gets out on the stage and he grabs Townsend and then he grabs, you know, Daltrey and they slow down and they stop. And Bill, so calm, so cool, says, we got a little problem. There is a, a fire drill. There's a fire on across the street, he was lying, you know, and there's a lot of smoke in the theater, and we're everything's fine. So uh, the ushers will show you out, and within in ten minutes, when we get the smoke out, we'll let you back in. He doesn't say that the building is on fire, you know, in the corner of the building, and the Fillmore itself wasn't on fire yet. So, the, you know, all the ushers, the audience is like, <sighs> you know, and so some usher, some genius usher from the tri-state area who had been to a hundred fire drills in his life says, <laughs> all right, it's a fire drill. Everyone grab a buddy. No talking, you know, and the theater was empty in four minutes. You know, we've all been trained too well. Nice you know? job. Yeah. You got to, you got to, I, I know you said you're going to do a video book, but uh, all, yeah. all of these stories are wonderful. And uh, God, what you, what you witnessed. I know. I feel a little zealoty. Was it Zalegic? Yeah, well, point of phrase. Alan, yeah. this is this has really a, a been a treat. We, we, this, oh, I was looking forward to it, and this is as much fun as I'd hoped. Oh, man, there's stuff we didn't get to. We didn't get to Attack of the 50-Foot Go-Go's, but we'll save something. Oh. We'll save something for next time. And next time we get together, uh, we'll, we'll just talk about, you know, rock and roll movies. That you got talk about it, the last you know. waltz and and Monterey oh, yeah. Pop and we'll just uh, and we'll talk. We'll Gilbert will talk about some Universal horror classics and oh, million yes. dollar movie too. 
And we'll yeah, just... In fact, next time, maybe you get Joe to come in and we'll do it together. That oh, would be, that would be fantastic. You guys see each yeah. other all the time, don't you? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm having dinner with him on Monday. Well, we'll do, we'll do an Arcush uh, Dante episode. <laughs> and, that and would I, be fun. And I we worked with other. the Ramones on Up All Night. Oh, my God. I did yeah. a thing where I was the fifth Ramon. <laughs> oh, perfect. They fit me with perfect. a long wig <laughs> and a leather jacket. And, and what name did they give you? I Oh, I forget, but they, yeah, I worked with the Ramones. So, so you were, you were Gilbert Ramon? Ramon. Gilly Ramon? Ramon. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Gilly Ramon. They still doing those late nights, the screenings in the, in the cemetery? Yeah, rock and roll yeah, high they, About every year or two, they yeah. ask me, and I go down there, and the movie keeps playing everywhere, and it's so nice. And sometimes I just work with a, a actress, and you know, she said, "I have to talk to you." And I, it was like she was very nice, and she said, um, "She was about, I would say, in her early forties." She says, "I looked at your IMDb, and then I noticed that you did rock and roll high school, and I have to thank you. I was a." shy girl in Catholic school who felt like an outsider, just me and my best friend, and we saw that movie at midnight. And I said, I could be like Riff Randall. I could do that. Oh, How wow. cool. And she said, so every day then a gym, uh, and, and a free period, we would walk around the outside of the Catholic school in our uniform and sing Rock and Roll High School Ramon songs. So thank you for that. How sweet. It's a great outcome. Roger was just trying to cash in on a trend, and you made a classic. But he was smart enough to realize my my enthusiasm, you know, and my obsession with it. And he just also did not cut one frame out of it. That's great. So that holds up so well. It it yeah. basically turned into what Hard Day's Night was. Like I was, hope so for some people. Yeah, you know? yeah I think it, it will. It started I think, out. I think it does, and it will. I mean, I guess the original intention was, you know, let's cash in, make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, you made a great movie out of it. And it's so nice because even though it was like my second movie, I've continued to work for 42 years since then, you know. And so it's nice that I'm still working, you oh, know. And oh. that, got, you any, know. got any plugs before we yeah, sign off? Um, uh, Netflix, uh, a series of unfortunate events. Okay. The uh, Lemony Snicket. With Neil Patrick I did, Harris? Yes, yeah. I did the second season pair of episodes called Hostile Hospital. Okay. And to tease you guys, it is, I got the, I took the job because I said, finally, I get to do Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Oh. Okay. You're, 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 boy, that's catnip for him. That's, yes. you know, that's what it was. <laughs> you know, it's that broad. Fantastic. And it's a little duck soup and all that stuff. So that's Hostile Hospital. And I think in two weeks, the penultimate episode of Nashville. Okay. Um, Wonderful. I've been doing uh, Nashville for about a year now. Wonderful. So. And I loved your work on I'll Fly Away. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's yeah. so nice. Yeah. Uh, this is a special show. show. We'll, oh. we'll get you back with Joe and uh, and we'll do, oh, a, that'll be we'll fun. do a crazy freewheeling movie episode. You bet. You okay, bet. man. Thank you again. Thank you, guys. This was a treat. We thank, thank Larry. And, All right. Thank you. We're going to sign and, off. And I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. With my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and what happened? We discussed with Alan Arkish, and I think the uh, the Sinatra uh, anecdote is now my favorite. It's great <laughs> podcast anecdote because of that great punchline. I know, Olympia. Alan, thank you so much. We'll talk again. You're welcome. Bye bye.
Gilbert Gottfried's amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to Paul Rayburn, John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative. Especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance. Well, I don't care about you.